Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a bi-weekly podcast delivering a legit, seriously researched, hard-hitting survey of American history through entertaining stories. If you'd like to support HTDS or enjoy some perks, like ad-free early episodes for $2 a month, please consider giving at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. To keep up with HTDS news, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Welcome to History That Doesn't Suck. I'm your professor, Greg Jackson, and I'd like to tell you a story. It's the evening of July 2nd, 1863, and Confederate soldier Joseph Wesley Culp, or Wes, as his friends and family know him, is walking through the streets of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Unlike his fellow conquerors, who are wandering aimlessly or thieving, the strong, short, and bearded soldier with dark, haunting eyes moves with great purpose through the grid-laid streets of this northern town of 2400. I imagine Wes's pace quickens as he reaches West Middle Street. His destination is on this very road. He walks a few more paces, then finally, he sees it. Yes, it might be dark out, but this is the house he's been looking for. Wes approaches and knocks. Now the whole town is spooked after a full day of fighting that's ended, so far at least, in Confederate occupation. But one woman in this very full house manages to find her courage. 28-year-old Anne cracks the door ever so slightly and then, overcome with complete shock, throws it wide open. Why, Wes, you're here, she cries, embracing the butternut-clad rebel. Yeah, a Pennsylvanian prodigal son has returned. Wes may have started a new life for himself in Shepherdstown, Virginia, back in 1856, but he's still a fourth-generation Gettysburgian. Anne is his sister. They step inside. Wes hugs his other sister, 20-year-old Julia, and soon the three siblings are engrossed in conversation. It's been years since they've seen each other. Hours pass as the reunited Culp clan shares a meal, gossips, and swaps stories. But this brief taste of normalcy, of a loving family spending an evening together, only lasts so long. As the night grows late, Wes knows he has to get back to camp. Anne and Julia plead with Wes to stay the night. But he can't. He's a soldier. Besides, Confederate General James Walker has already been more than fair in granting him a pass to visit his family for the evening. The commander even offered to let West sit out the battle rather than ask him to lay siege to his hometown. But the native Pennsylvanian won't do that. If his regiment must fight, he'll be there with them. In a weird way, West's sense of honor won't let him sit out this assault on his childhood home. But I'll be back in the morning. Wes reassures his sisters. He also asks that they make sure Mrs. Skelly come over at that time. Their northern-born rebel brother now explains that he found his childhood Union-loyal friend, her son, Jack Skelly, severely wounded in the arm at the Second Battle of Winchester. As he rushed Jack to the surgeons, his dear, captive friend gave him a message to pass along to his mother. Wes would like to deliver that message to her in the morning. You tell Mrs. Skelly I will be back in the morning and have her here. I want to talk to her and I'll be back for sure. No message from Jack for anyone else in Gettysburg, Wes? One of his sisters asks. Undoubtedly, she's referring to Jack's love interest, Jenny Wade. Never mind, Wes answers. You'll get all the news from Mrs. Skelly. Of course, acknowledging that he was on the same battlefield as Jack that he fought against Jack, also means that he fought against everyone else enlisted in the 87th Pennsylvania. In other words, Wes fought against his cousins, David and Billy, and perhaps worse still, the fourth Culp sibling, his brother, William. 
Did you know you were fighting your brother, Will, with the other boys of the 87th at Winchester? Anne asks. A pregnant silence fills the next few seconds. Her stomach must be turning. I can only imagine what Will's wife and little son, who also live here, might be thinking. Not until Billy told me. Wes hesitantly responds. Oh, yeah. He saw Cousin Billy at Winchester as well, after Billy was taken prisoner. Young Julia is heartbroken. Oh, Wes, how could you shoot at poor Will? I did not know it, little one. We were fighting in the night. Her Confederate older brother replies, hoping to comfort her. I know you wouldn't have shot at Will in daylight, would you, Wes? Julia now asks. She has to know Culp blood is thicker than Confederate water. No, indeed, Julia, I would not. With those words and parting hugs and kisses, he steps out into the night to rejoin his unit. Anne yells out one last plea for Wes to sleep over as he walks along West Middle Street. You ought to stay with us all night, Wes. Come back. We may never see you again. Finally, we've arrived at the most famous battle of the Civil War, Gettysburg. This deadly turning point engagement has been the life's work of many historians, but holding with our focus on U.S. history as a whole, I'll tell the tale, or at least its most vital parts, in this one episode. We'll start by figuring out how Confederate and Union forces came to clash at this battle that neither side intended. Then we'll march through each of Gettysburg's three hot, blood-soaked summer days between July 1st and 3rd in 1863. And of course, we won't just focus on the summer's carnage. We'll be sure to hear President Lincoln's remarks at the dedication of Gettysburg National Cemetery a few months later that November. So let's find out what happens to Wes Culp and the other nearly 200,000 men who fight here. And to do that, well, you know what we need to do. Rewind. It's May, 1863. The Union Army of the Potomac and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia camp on opposite sides of the Rappahannock, waiting to resume their summer campaigns against each other. And since they are so close to one another, rebel sentries have no problem sending a few well-aimed words across the river at their Yankee counterparts. One rebel sentry might shout, I say, Yank, where's fighting Joe Hooker now? Ooh, he may have gotten beaten to a pulp at the Battle of Chancellorsville, but the Yankees won't take this insult to their general lying down. One Federal retorts, Oh, he's gone to Stonewall Jackson's funeral. Damn. While his soldiers shoot barbs instead of bullets at the Union Army, Confederate General Robert E. Lee takes a train to Richmond for a meeting with his bosses, President Jefferson Davis and War Secretary James Seddon. Now, Jeff and James want to send part of Bobby Lee's army to reinforce Vicksburg, Mississippi, the city Union General Ulysses S. Grant is currently attacking. But the graying Confederate commander believes he has a better idea. He tells Jeff, It was seen that Virginia is to be the theater of action, and this army, if possible, ought to be strengthened. Bobby Lee wants to invade the North. In his epic plan, he proposes to march his men northwest from Fredericksburg into the Shenandoah Valley. After they've gathered a bunch of food and supplies here, he will march north, cross the Potomac River, pass through Maryland's narrowest part, and end up in southeastern Pennsylvania. He hopes that this trek into enemy territory will give him a fair opportunity to strike a blow. But he has a couple other goals. Bobby wants to get his men some food. Seriously, they have completely picked over the rich farms and countryside of Virginia. It's time to see what the prosperous Pennsylvania farmers have to offer. Bobby Lee hopes a Confederate victory on Union soil will also bolster the United States Peace Democrats, aka Copperheads, which could open peace talks with the Union and possibly induce France and Britain to support the Confederacy. Well, his bosses are totally on board. War Secretary James Seddon tells him, I concur entirely in your views of the importance of aggressive movements by your army. So, Bobby Lee immediately starts to put his plan into action. Now, while the Confederate army moves north, there's yet another shakeup in Union command. Here's the thing. 
Fightin' Joe Hooker has been working on his best former General George Little Mac McClellan impression by begging for more troops. President Lincoln and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck have been refusing. Joe's had enough of this. At 8 p.m. on June 27th, he sends a terse telegram to Henry. I am unable to comply with this condition and earnestly request that I may be relieved from the position I occupy. Frankly, Henry and Lincoln are kind of relieved to get this message. When Henry shows Lincoln the telegram, he states, Accept his resignation. Within hours, Lincoln appoints Corps Commander George Meade as general over the Army of the Potomac. George performed well at Antietam and Fredericksburg, but he's not too popular with his men. Though tall, bespeckled George is professional, thoughtful, and honest, he has a temper. One staffer says, quote, He might have been taken for a Presbyterian clergyman unless one approached him when he was mad. Close quote. George's angry outbursts earn him the nickname Old Snapping Turtle, but no one's dumb enough to tell him that. When George takes command, the Union and Confederate armies are both north of the Potomac. Union scouts have intel that the rebels are fanned out in the area north and west of a bustling little town called Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. But Bobby Lee is flying blind. His most reliable scouts, Jeb Stewart's crack cavalry unit, are off on a raiding party and the Confederate general has almost no idea where the Union army is. On June 30th, two brigades of Union troops commanded by General John Buford enter Gettysburg and receive a hearty welcome from the locals. A welcome change for these boys in blue who are used to getting cursed by Confederate civilians. This town has highly defensible ridges north, west, and south of it. Gettysburg also has a dozen roads leading into it from almost every direction, making it highly likely that the Confederate Army will want to attack and control this junction. George Meade orders John Buford to, quote, hold on to it to the last, close quote. John sends messengers back to George at his headquarters 13 miles south in Tawnytown, Maryland, to ask for backup while he sets up some preliminary defenses. As they wait, one of John's soldiers gets cocky and claims that he could easily whip any Reb who dares to attack them at Gettysburg. No, you won't. They will attack you in the morning and they will come booming. Skirmishers three deep. You will have to fight like the devil to hold your own. Well, that's not exactly how it goes down. On the hot, muggy morning of July 1st, 1863, Bobby Lee has no idea where the Union Army is. Although he's heard a few reports about Yankee cavalry in Gettysburg, he doesn't believe them. Without accurate reports from Jeb Stuart, who's still on his raid, Bobby tells a staffer, A scout reports Meade's whole army is marching this way, but this is all I know about his position. The rebels figure that General George Meade is still days away from Gettysburg. At 5 a.m., Confederate General Harry Heth marches from Cashtown east toward Gettysburg with about 13,500 men. They don't have direct orders to engage the enemy. In fact, Harry's orders say almost the exact opposite. Quote, Ascertain what force is at Gettysburg, and if you find infantry, report the fact immediately without forcing an engagement. Close quote. Harry may interpret these orders more like guidelines than actual rules today. At 7.30 a.m., Union troops on the western side of Gettysburg spot Harry's men. Lieutenant Marcellus Jones of the 8th Illinois knows what to do. One of his men watches in awe as Marcellus, quote, took Sergeant Schaefer's carbine, rested it against a fence rail, and fired at the commanding officer as the column of rebel infantry came across the Marsh Creek Bridge. Close quote. Marcellus just fired the first shot. Of Gettysburg. Day 1, Wednesday, July 1st. The battle has officially begun. Harry Heth can clearly see, quote, infantry, cavalry, and artillery in and around the town, close quote, but he figures he's got this. The rash rebel general orders his men, move forward and occupy the town. Yep, without reinforcements or any kind of battle plan, really, Harry throws his men into the fray. Let me draw you a mental picture of where these troops are fighting. As I said before, Gettysburg has ridges and hills on three of its sides, 
The Union and Confederate troops now fighting each other are west of town. Here, several ridges offer highly defensible ground, so of course, both armies are going to try to occupy these. Below the ridges, dense woods and well-tended farm fields could become dangerous places for a division or brigade to hang out. The Union troops sit with Gettysburg to their backs, with only a few roads into town as their escape route. But these guys aren't looking to retreat. The seasoned Federals return Rebel bullets shot for shot. The fighting soon becomes intense. A little before 9 a.m., Union General John Reynolds and his First Corps join the fight. Among these Yankee reinforcements is the Iron Brigade. You know, those fierce Midwesterners wearing highly recognizable black hats who fought like hell at the Battle of Turner's Gap in Episode 52. Well, John Reynolds, a confident young general, holds a quick conference with John Buford. The two Union commanders like and respect one another, and within minutes, they have a plan to occupy and hold McPherson's Ridge until more troops arrive from their camp south of town. John Reynolds gets right into the action at the base of McPherson's Ridge and a copse of trees known as Herbst Woods. He orders the arriving reinforcements, quote, to charge as fast as they can, close quote. At 10.15 a.m., John rides near the edge of the woods, barking orders. Forward, men! Forward, for God's sake! And drive those fellows out of the woods! John knows that as long as the rebels hold this area, the Union position on McPherson's Ridge isn't safe. And just then, Confederate soldiers fire a volley at the Federal troops. John's aide, Charles Veal, tells us, quote, A miniball struck him in the back of the neck, and he fell from his horse, dead. He never spoke a word or moved a muscle after he was struck. Close quote. That's a tough loss for Union troops, but they keep up the fight. By mid-afternoon, both armies have been reinforced. Approximately 24,000 Confederates face 19,000 Federals. The brutal battle west of Gettysburg continues, and when Confederate General Richard Dick Ewell approaches the embattled town from the north, the battlefield expands. From his vantage point on Oak Ridge, recent leg amputee Dick can see that the Union north flank is ripe for the picking. Though he also has orders to avoid a wholesale battle, Dick throws his men into the fight. He later explains, It was too late to avoid an engagement without abandoning the position already taken up, and I determined to push the attack vigorously. See, Dick has enough battle experience to know that if he fails to support the attack brought on by Harry Heth this morning, the Confederates will lose any advantage they have. The fighting continues through the brutal heat and humidity. One Union soldier can't believe what he's seen all around him. Quote, The troops taking part were sweaty, blackened by the gunpowder, and they looked more like animals than human beings. This portrait of battle was a portrait of hell. Close quote. Frankly, the Federal troops are exhausted. Many of them have marched miles into battle today and fought in the oppressive heat. With as much organization as you can expect, so not much, the Federal troops retreat back through Gettysburg. One rebel soldier describes it. We had them fairly in a pen, with only one gap open, the turnpike that led into Gettysburg, and hither they fled twenty deep. We, all the while, popping into them as fast as we could load and fire. What these Confederate troops don't know is that the fleeing Yankees have a safe base to run to. That's because as Union troops joined the fighting today, Major General Otis Howard took up a position on Cemetery Hill, creatively named because the town's cemetery sits on it. Otis saw how perfectly positioned this hill south of Gettysburg was. So even though commanders asked him to join the fight west of town, Otis stayed put. Good thinking, Major. Now that Union troops are running pell-mell through the streets of Gettysburg, Otis has a place for them to regroup and set up defenses. All right, Rebels, you've got the Yankees on the run. Time to lay into them before they can dig in, right? Well, you'd think. But Confederate General Dick Yule doesn't make a move. At 5 p.m., he's hanging out in Gettysburg waiting for orders from General Robert E. Lee. Bobby has been near the town since about noon, but in his typical hands-off style, he's been letting his subordinates run the operation. Now, Dick could use a little more direction. Thankfully for the floundering general, 
Bobby Lee decides to take control of the situation. Dick's new orders read, Carry the hill occupied by the enemy, if you find it practicable, but avoid a general engagement until the arrival of the other divisions of the army. Dick gets tripped up on one word, if. What does that even mean? Should he attack or not? With this open-ended order, the one-legged general seems to lose his confidence. So what's Bobby Lee thinking here? Well, remember, this isn't a battle he thought he would fight today. But thanks to a couple of over-eager generals, <clears throat> Dick and Harry, <clears throat> it's the battle he has. As July 1st winds to a close, Bobby has to decide. Will he continue to fight the Union Army at Gettysburg or pull back to another location? The confident Confederate chooses the former. He will attack the Union position at Cemetery Hill, south of town no matter what. But his general, James Old Pete Longstreet, doesn't like the idea. In fact, he hates it. Now, we've met James a few times before, but let me explain his nickname of Old Pete as we bond a bit more with this crucial Confederate general. As a child in Georgia, James's father noticed his son's steady nature and gave James the biblical nickname, Peter the Rock. It stuck. James has been known as Peter, or Old Pete, ever since. Old Pete's rock-like loyalty and dependability leads Bobby Lee to call the general, My Old Warhorse. But right now, Old Pete is acting more like a stubborn mule, and that frustrates Bobby. The Virginian commander points at Cemetery Hill and says, If he is there, it will be because he is anxious that we should attack him. A good reason, in my judgment, for not doing it. Whoa, slow down there, old Pete. You're about two steps away from full-on insubordination. But the point is moot anyway. While Bobby and old Pete Longstreet argue, and Dick is paralyzed by indecision, Union troops reinforce Cemetery Hill. Oh, and they set up defensive lines on nearby Culp's Hill just to double down. There will be no more Confederate advances tonight. As dark falls, the Confederates occupy Gettysburg proper. The Union troops hold the ground south of town. About 1 a.m., General George Meade and his remaining troops arrive. He confers with his generals and learns that they've chosen an incredibly strong position to defend. From a bird's-eye view, the Federal line looks like a backwards question mark, or fishhook, curving from Culp's Hill up and over to Cemetery Hill, then extending south along Cemetery Ridge down to the Round Top Hills. Corps Commander Dan Sickles puts in his two cents. It is a good place to fight from, General. George tiredly replies, I'm glad to hear you say so, gentlemen, for it is too late to leave it. But there's no rest for George tonight. He goes on a moonlit tour of his lines while most of his federal troops sleep in the open. One soldier later recalled, We of the 11th Corps occupying the cemetery lay down, wrapped in cloaks, with the troops among the gravestones. Wow. Try to get some sleep, guys. Confederate reinforcements are on their way, and they mean to bring the heat tomorrow. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, oh, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
the Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Day 2, Thursday, July 2nd. Union troops stationed on Cemetery and Culp's Hill are up with the sun today. Union General George Meade believes that Confederate General Dick Ewell's men camped in town could strike at any time, and he wants his men ready. By 6 a.m., federal troops are digging in on the south side of Culp's Hill, in what you could call the barb of the fishhook-shaped Union lines. And to remind you, from there, the line curves up and around Cemetery Hill, and finally, it extends south down Cemetery Ridge to Little Round Top Hill, where General Dan Sickles holds the Union left flank. Now, this curved line might sound a little weird, but it gives the Union Army a huge advantage. George can easily reinforce both ends of his lines by moving his troops within the hook. That's going to matter today. So let's get to the action. Just after dawn, Confederate skirmishers approach Culp's Hill. They scout out the Union position and exchange shots with Yankee pickets. I only mention this bit of action because this is where Private Wes Culp, who I told you about in the opening, meets his demise. We can't be sure exactly where, but young West dies somewhere on the Union's right lines, the only man in the 2nd Virginia Regiment to be killed this morning. So no, he won't be visiting his sisters or talking to Mrs. Skelly. He takes his message to the grave. After this, George orders his federal troops to wait for the Confederates to bring on the fighting. The boys in blue will be playing defense today. So what is the rebel plan? Well, Bobby Lee spends the morning trying to figure that out. Jeb Stewart's cavalry still hasn't shown up, so Bobby has spotty intelligence about the Union's position. But the general wants to strike while the iron is hot. At 11 a.m., he orders old Pete Longstreet to move south with two of his divisions and one of A.P. Hills and attack the Union left flank. Bobby Lee tells Dick Ewell to wait for the sounds of the Longstreet assault, then hit the Union right at Cemetery and Culp's Hills. With action on both ends, Bobby figures the so far unimpressive Union army will collapse like a house of cards. Old Pete takes a while to get his men in order. He doesn't begin marching toward Union lines until after 3 p.m. And then, Old Pete's men bungle the march. In a futile attempt to avoid detection, the 15,000-man army marches, countermarches, and circles around the ridges, woods, and open fields southwest of Gettysburg. But as the gray-clad soldiers finally approach their enemy's position from the west, they get a real shock. The Union soldiers aren't where they are supposed to be. According to Rebel Intelligence, Dan Sickles' Third Corps should be holding the Union line from Cemetery Ridge south down to Little Round Top Hill. But they aren't. Confederate General Lafayette McLaws details. On arriving at the vicinity of the orchard, the enemy were discovered in greater force than was supposed. Let me give you the details. Near the western base of Cemetery Ridge and Little Round Top Hill sit three easy-to-spot landmarks. First, Sherfy's Peach Orchard. Second, a little to the south, Mr. Rose's Farm. And third, a rocky outcropping called Devil's Den. Dan thinks the peach orchard is a much better place for his artillery than Cemetery Ridge. And the fact that he doesn't have enough guys to stay connected to the rest of the Union lines from here doesn't bother the cocky Union commander one bit. Federal General Winfield Scott Hancock watches through a spyglass as Dan Sickles' men move into their unsafe, unconnected positions west of Cemetery Ridge. What in the hell can that man Sickles be doing? He wonders. Word gets back to George at his headquarters near the cemetery, and he is pissed. Remember how I said George Meade has an angry streak? Well, one of the general staffers says, 
I never saw General Meade so angry, if I may so call it. George rides out to see Dan's lines himself. When he gets to Cemetery Ridge, he's shocked. George seethingly asks, Where the devil are your troops, Sickles? Out here, sir, Dan replies, pointing half a mile west to the peach orchard. What the devil are they out there for? George almost screams. He's so mad, I'm sure he wishes he had a more colorful vocabulary. Well, sir, I thought they would better protect Roundtop than they would here, Dan explains. George lets out a long breath and points to the spot where he stands. <sighs> General Sickles, this is neutral ground. Our guns command it, as well as the enemies. The very reason you cannot hold it applies to them. Dan's eyes widen in understanding. He should never have moved his troops so far out of the line. Should I pull my division back, General Meade? George shakes his head. You might try. You cannot hold this position, but the enemy will not let you get away without a fight. Dan's men will have to fight where they stand. Rebel troops just opened fire. The fighting in the Peach Orchard is brutal. One Union soldier records, quote, As fast as we would break one line of the enemy, another fresh one would present itself. Close quote. Rebel troops attack Dan Union's Third Corps in the woods and fields of Mr. Rose's farm and in that rocky outcropping called Devil's Den. At Devil's Den, huge boulders and the craggy spaces between them offer perfect cover for the desperate Union soldiers. But the gray-clad men work hard to flush out their enemy. One Alabama private reports. Each side wanted the protection of those rocks. One in particular. It was very large, about four or five feet high. I saw smoke coming from behind that one and made a run for it, swerving to the right with my gun ready. I cried, hands up. They dropped their guns and came out from behind the rock. One said, young man, where is your troops? I told them I was it and showed them to the rear. The Union lines get pushed back onto Little Round Top, but the troops here have strict orders to hold their position at all costs, and they intend to follow those orders. Colonel Joshua Chamberlain and his CO, Strong Vincent, command their battle-hardened troops to hold their ground on the south slopes of Little Round Top. When his right flank starts to pull back, Strong, which I know is the best military name ever, rides out to whip his men into shape but a rebel bullet hits him in the leg, severing an artery. As he's carried off the field, Strong tells his men, This is the fourth or fifth time they've shot at me, and they have hit me at last. Joshua Chamberlain and his men of the 20th Maine Regiment keep fighting, but they're running out of ammunition, and they can see rebels trudging up the hill toward their position. Though Josh was a professor of rhetoric and language before the war, he makes an excellent commander. And right now, he has a brilliant idea. He calls to his men. Fix bayonets! The Mainers know what this means. They charge full bore into the stunned Alabama troops. One federal soldier remembers. Quote, the left took up the shout and moved forward. Every man eager not to be left behind, the whole line flung itself down the slope, through the fire and smoke upon the enemy. Close quote. The rebels are so surprised, they throw up their hands and surrender without the Federals firing another shot. Though Dancicle's corps got pushed out of the Peach Orchard, the Fields, the Woods, and Devil's Den, they hold Little Round Top. Among the casualties of this bloody episode is Union General Stephen Weed. Stephen is carried to the nearby Shriver home. 15-year-old Tilly Pierce is a house guest at this farmhouse-turned-hospital who came here to get away from the fighting and instead found herself right in the middle of it. The dark-haired girl helps the wounded soldiers any way she can. When Stephen shows up, she sits with him for a while. Tilly remembers. I talked to him and asked if he was injured badly. He answered, yes, pretty badly. I told him if there was anything I could do for him, I would be so glad to do it. The poor man looked so earnestly into my face, saying, Will you promise me to come back in the morning to see me? Tilly assures the man that she will. But when she returns in the morning, Stephen is already dead.
Rest in peace, friend. Back on the battlefield, Confederates are hitting the Union left and center lines hard. General George Meade has to pull men from the right flank on Culp's and Cemetery Hills to plug holes in his battered lines. Well, that is exactly what Bobby Lee hoped he would do. It's time for Dick Yule to attack. And yeah, he's been doing some half-hearted shelling on the hills, but if he's going to ramp up into full attack mode, now's the time to do it. As dusk comes on, Dick sends a few men to take the Union trenches on Culp's Hill. But moving men out of Gettysburg and into position takes precious time. Once they hit the well-fortified hill, it's completely dark. The Confederates manage to sweep the Union soldiers out of their lower trenches before calling off the fight. One Confederate commander explains, I had had experience in trying to retake breastworks after dark, so I ordered all the brigades to occupy the open field in front of the woods, put out a strong picket line, and awaited daylight for further operations. By 10.30 p.m., the guns fall silent on Culp's Hill. Back at General Bobby Lee's headquarters, he's getting reports of the day's fighting. And from where he stands, it's not all bad news. Old Pete Longstreet is still in position to attack tomorrow. Dick Yule holds a good spot on Culp's Hill. Bobby Lee has fresh troops that can reinforce his battle-weary men. And finally, Jeb Stewart showed up a few hours ago. He and his cavalrymen are exhausted from starvation, skirmishes, and riding 250 miles in a mere eight days but he's ready to join the fight. Bobby's pretty sure that one more hard right hook will KO the Yankees. The Confederate general later reports his plan. The result of this day's operations induced the belief that, with proper concert of actions and with increased support, we should ultimately succeed and it was accordingly determined to continue the attack. The general plan was unchanged. Longstreet, reinforced by Pickett's three brigades, was ordered to attack the next morning and General Ewell was directed to assail the enemy's right at the same time. At sunrise, this fight will be back on. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Day 3, Friday, July 3rd, 4.30 a.m. The sun's just rising on what will be a hot summer's day. Sticking with his plan, Bobby Lee expects a few things to be happening simultaneously right now. 1. Dick Yule should be attacking the Union's right just southeast of the town of Gettysburg on Culp's Hill. 2. Latecomer Jeb Stewart and his cavalry should be riding around Gettysburg's east side, looking for a chance to harass the Union rear, maybe interrupting its Baltimore Pike supply line. And 3. The crowning achievement, James Old Pete Longstreet should have 15,000 or so men starting an assault farther southwest at the Union's fishhook-shaped lines at Cemetery Ridge. Bobby's wanted to break the Union center for days now. He's sure hammering at its flanks has weakened it, and so, by God, today's the day. As he rides towards Old Pete's headquarters, located on the west of both Cemetery Ridge and Emmitsburg Road, the 50-something Virginian can hear guns firing at Culp's Hill. Ah, perfect. Sounds like Dick Yule's doing his part. But wait. Drawing closer to old Pete Longstreet's turf, it looks like his usually reliable old warhorse, General, isn't attacking. In fact, he's not even preparing to do so. What the hell? Now, this lack of movement might not be old Pete's fault. Tired and grumpy, neither general sought the other out last night. 
Bobby sent out his orders via messengers, and it looks like something got lost along the way. According to his later autobiography, Old Pete says any claims that he had orders before this morning are, quote-unquote, disingenuous. Regardless of where a miscommunication happened, though, the magnificently bearded general still thinks the assault is a terrible idea. He makes yet another attempt to convince his commander. General, I have been a soldier all my life. I have been with soldiers engaged in fights by couples, by squads, companies, regiments, divisions, and armies, and should know, as well as anyone, what soldiers can do. It is my opinion that no 15,000 men ever arrayed for battle can take that position. Old Pete exclaims, pointing right at Cemetery Hill. Bobby doesn't appreciate the feedback. Even if he did, he certainly can't back down now. A general can't give orders one minute, only to change his mind the next. He replies that his men can do it, and he expects his first corps commander to follow his orders. As much as old Pete might disagree, he will move forward with this plan of attack. Frankly, Bobby's just beginning to see how severely his plans are going awry. Remember those guns we heard firing at Culp's Hill while heading to old Pete's this morning? Turns out those guns weren't his. They were federal. Confederate commander Dick Ewell was ready to attack at sunrise, but the Union's 12th Corps took the fight to his rebels while it was still dark, striking with a barrage of artillery. The fire was awful. The whole hillside seemed enveloped in a blaze. Confederate Major William Goldsboro of the 1st Maryland Battalion will later write. But the Confederates aren't throwing in the towel here. Enjoying the protection of Union-built breastworks, the boys in gray and butternut wait until the artillery lets up, then charge forward with their blood-curdling rebel yell. Countless rifles crack as the two sides battle it out for seven hours straight, from about 4 to 11 a.m. When the fighting slows in the late morning, though, a clear winter emerges. It cost thousands of lives and destroyed the idyllic oak forest where Gettysburgians once loved to have picnics. But the Federals have succeeded in holding Culp's Hill. The 12th Corps takes prisoners and recoups its previously lost trenches as George Green's brigade gives three cheers. Meanwhile, as the Confederacy failure on Culp's Hill becomes a certainty, Jeb Stewart's cavalry is reaching the Federal rear. Now, since Bobby Lee didn't have Jeb around to plan on in the past few days, this attack is really just a tack on to today's plans. He waits until he hears the Confederate artillery firing at Cemetery Ridge around 1 p.m. And then he attacks. What follows is a gnarly, hours-long engagement. First, the two sides exchange artillery and skirmish. This next gives way to a massive clash of cavalry. Roughly 3,000 Yankee riders and over 3,000 rebel horsemen take part in the fray. David Gregg is the main Union commander here, but a 23-year-old Union brigadier general with a penchant for style equal to that of Jeb Stewart himself charges out ahead of his Michigan men. The kid wants to prove himself. Come on, you Wolverines! He calls out encouragingly. He fights ferociously. Union cavalryman Victor Compte watches as the young commander, engaged in combat with a rebel, runs his sword clear through the man's stomach. You can guess how bravely soldiers fight for such a general, the soldier tells us. This general is named George Armstrong Custer, and yes, he's that Custer. But his famous, or perhaps infamous, last stand is a story for another day. Jeb loses fewer men overall. 181 compared to the Union's 254, most of whom are under the command of George Custer. But the swashbuckling rebel doesn't succeed here. He's failed to disrupt the Federals or their supply lines or harass them in any meaningful way. Okay, let's take stock real quick. We've followed two of Bobby's three planned attacks for the day. The sunrise engagement on Culp's Hill and Jeb's around-the-back attack on the Union rear. So far, he's 0 for 2. Now we get to the main event, the assault at Cemetery Ridge. Now remember, this assault is happening at the same time as Jeb's failed cavalry attack. That means it starts around 1 p.m. So what's been going on all morning? Well, Bobby's had some shuffling to do. 
The Army of Northern Virginia commander had intended for Old Pete Longstreet's men to move in more of a diagonal, charging northeast, starting around the Peach Orchard and heading up Cemetery Ridge. But between the lay of troops and availability, his original plan won't quite fly. Bobby's also determined that George Pickett's division lead the charge. This Virginian, West Point grad, Mexican-American war vet with his flowing locks and a pirate-like mustache-goatee combo had only been ordered to march his men to Gettysburg after the battle started. That means he and his men are relatively fresh. But given their location on the field, they can't start the charge at the Peach Orchard. That would take far too much time in maneuvering so they'll need to dash, more or less, straight at the Union Center. Now you have undoubtedly noticed that General Old Pete Longstreet is, despite his opposition to this plan, in command here. But he's borrowing a number of brigades from A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps, with 11 brigades total at his disposal. Meanwhile, George Pickett is only in charge of the few brigades within his division. Yet, because of his role leading the Central Brigades, this assault will come to be known as Pickett's Charge. Okay, with that, I think we're ready to let it begin. Old Pete Longstreet starts with an artillery barrage that gives way to what is arguably the largest artillery duel of the whole war. With 163 Confederate guns fanned out in an arc from as far south as the Peach Orchard all the way up to Gettysburg itself, His cannonading begins at 1.07 p.m. And yes, miles to the east, this is when Jeb starts his attack. But at Cemetery Ridge, federal troops are ready. As we already know, their commander, George Meade, anticipated an attack of some sorts here on this line last night. With roughly analogous force, Union artillery opens fire. The 300 guns firing at each other make such a noise for the next two hours, it's heard 200 miles away in Pittsburgh. Finally, around 3 p.m., the Union's artillery lets up. Have the rebel guns really blasted them out of commission? Can't know for sure, but can't give them time to recover either. It's now or never, damn it. Oh, how old Pete Longstreet hates obeying these orders from Bobby. What if this charge goes as badly as he fears? General, shall I advance? George Pickett asks. Old Pete is so distraught he can't even speak. He only manages to nod in the affirmative hoping he isn't sending his dear protege and friend, as well as thousands of men, to a pointless death. The general with flowing locks salutes his old mentor and firmly answers, I shall lead my division forward, sir. The Confederates have just under a mile of open farmland to cover as they advance east toward Cemetery Ridge. They're generally moving towards a copse of trees. Think tree stumps with young shoots on top of the ridge. Whether they can see the cops or not is something future generations will debate. But as they march, they soon learn, to their horror, that the Federal guns weren't knocked out. Union Chief of Artillery Henry Hunt purposely let the rebels think that was the case in order to save his ammo and lure them out. And now, he's blasting them to kingdom come. When the boys in gray and butternut get too close for cannonballs, the artillery genius has his men switch to canister. And once they get within 200 yards, infantry protected by stone walls or making flanking movements bring their rifles to bear. The most successful brigade, one of George Pickett's in fact, manages to make it to the stone wall only to be overwhelmed by Federals. This brigade's commander is Louis Armistead. By the way, we met his uncle, George Armistead, back in episode 25. He served as Fort McHenry's commander during the War of 1812 bombardment that inspired Francis Scott Key to pen the national anthem. Well, his nephew Lewis might have his uncle's bravery, but not his luck. Just after making it past a sharp jutting point on the stone wall, soon to be known as the Bloody Angle, He suffers a mortal wound after placing one hand on a oh-so-briefly-captured Union cannon. He'll die in a Union field hospital two days later. 
but this being as close as any Confederates ever came to succeeding at this crucial battle. The place where this brigade fell will come to be known as the high watermark of the Confederacy. Because frankly, after today, despite the blood and treasure yet to be spilt and spent, this will prove to be the apex of the CSA's war effort. Not that any of these guys know that yet. Old Pete was absolutely right. For all the courage displayed at Pickett's charge, this assault was nothing more than a death sentence. It made Gettysburg like Fredericksburg, only with the shoe now on the other foot. Although George Pickett himself miraculously survives, 7,000 of the 14,000 Confederates who made this charge, be that under his command or one of the other generals, is injured, taken captive, or dead. It's all my fault, Bobby says as his men fall back. It is I who have lost this fight. He freely confesses while preparing for a Union counterattack. But George Meade's army doesn't pursue. The battle is over. The Union has won. Countless books will be written examining how Gettysburg might have gone differently. For instance, what if on day one, when Bobby Lee instructed Dick Yule to take Cemetery Hill, if practicable, he had, well, found it practicable. Or what if Stonewall Jackson had survived Chancellorsville and were still commanding this corps? Historian James McPherson has no doubt what would have happened. To quote him, Jackson undoubtedly would have found it practicable, but Ewell was not Jackson. Close quote. The battle might have gone differently. Some think old Pete Longstreet should have better supported his commander, or better still, that he did get orders to have Pickett's charge ready at daybreak on day two, but he dropped the ball. Could this have changed things? And what about Jeb Stuart? The South's dashing cavalryman was MIA, but was that on him or were Bobby Lee's orders lacking? These and other such debates will likely rage for generations to come. Of course, some of the immediate aftermath is less abstract. The human carnage is staggering. Confederate numbers aren't exact, yet still, the death toll is unmatched by any other Civil War battle. To give a low figure, more than 6,000 men, over 3,000 on each side, certainly died. Including wounded and missing, there were over 45,000 casualties over the three days at Gettysburg, including one civilian. And that number further jumps to 57,000 if we include the weeks leading up to it. Tactically, the battle put Bobby Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia on their heels. On a rainy 4th of July, he leads his men on a retreat back to Northern Virginia. For his part, George Meade doesn't pursue. Some will take issue with him for this, but he's just happy to have won such a major battle thrown into his lap as he took command of the Army of the Potomac less than a week earlier. As for the battle's long-term effects, well, that's a bit murkier. Future generations will see this as a turning point, but our 19th century friends on both sides don't have the luxury of hindsight, and this war is far from over. What I can tell you is that the news of the July 3rd victory at Gettysburg in the East, not to mention the July 4th victory at Vicksburg in the West, electrify the Union's war effort. President Abraham Lincoln is elated. He will not forget this victory. It's now Wednesday, November 18th, 1863. President Lincoln has been invited to speak at the dedication of Gettysburg National Cemetery, where thousands of American soldiers who fell during those early days in July including a staggering 1,600 unknown soldiers, are being properly interred. There's plenty of lore surrounding his train ride from D.C. to the southern Pennsylvania town. Is the ever-busy Illinois rail splitter writing the speech on an envelope as he moves east on the tracks? Or is he just chatting with other passengers, as his secretary John Nicolay will later claim? We'll never know the answer to this for sure, but we do know one thing. The speech is not done, and he's delivering it tomorrow. Lincoln's faithful god of war, Secretary Edwin Stanton, telegraphs that night that his son Tad has regained his health. Thank God. The news clears the president's head a bit and helps him think. From 11 p.m. to midnight, he goes over the speech with his trusted Secretary of State, William Henry Seward. As inevitable as any future date, the morning comes. It's now Thursday, November 19th. Following breakfast and a few final alterations, 
Lincoln mounts a chestnut-colored horse and rides along in the procession going to the cemetery. Here, military officers, governors, congressmen, three of his own cabinet members, and a crowd of 9,000 are gathered, ready to hear from the truly noteworthy main speaker, former Harvard University president and noted orator, Edward Everett. He tells the tale of the whole battle for two hours. Some love it. Others, like the editor of the Philadelphia Age, rake him. Quote, he gave us plenty of words, but no heart. He talked like a historian. Close quote. Now that's a low blow. But in all seriousness, the time has come. The tall, gangly president rises. The crowd is so silent, you can hear the outdoor stage on which he stands creak as he walks to the speaker's stand, puts on his glasses, and grabs his notes. There are five versions of the Gettysburg Address. The alterations are slight, but I'm fond of the one he later gifted to his fellow speaker, Edward Everett. I'd like to read you that one, with applauses added where the reporters of the day note clapping. And when you hear dead silence at the end, don't adjust your earbuds. The applause is coming. His democracy-praising speech is just so short, the audience doesn't realize he's done. They stand in awkward silence before applauding, leaving Lincoln sure in these first few moments that his speech is a failure. Wanting to recreate this moment for you? We'll do the same. And with that set up, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you President Lincoln. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to that great task remaining before us that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolved that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. History That Doesn't Suck is created and hosted by me, Greg Jackson. Researching and writing, Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar. Production and sound design, Josh Beatty of JB Audio Design. Musical score, composed and performed by Greg Jackson and Diana Averill. For a bibliography of all primary and secondary sources consulted in writing this episode, visit historythatdoesntsuck.com. HTDS is supported by fans at patreon.com forward slash historythatdoesntsuck. Josh, CL, and I are beyond grateful to you kind souls providing funding to help us keep going. Thank you. And a special thanks to our patrons whose monthly gift puts them at producer status. Will Caldwell, Jason Carstens, Stephen Davis, Andrew Fortunati, 
Margaret Graves, Brad Herman, Dex Jones, and John Leach. Join me in two weeks where I'd like to tell you a story.